Well, hello. Hello again, awesomers. It's me. It's your old buddy, Steve Simonson. And I am here for you today to do another podcast episode in this now longrunningosmers.com podcast series. Now, for anyone who has been wondering, where are we in our Founder Foundations mini-series? We're coming up near the very end. There's three more episodes to go in this series, and today is the first of those last three. And by the way, the, the next three are quite critical in terms of finishing out uh, that management concept for you to focus on what are the processes and, and training areas that you need to uh, develop for yourself and for your team. And today specifically, we're going to talk about the concept of building position agreements. So we talked earlier about making a functional org chart and then you know, kind of defining what are the subsystems within that org chart and then even assigning names. Well, first you assign position titles, and then you assign names uh, who occupies those positions inside your company. And don't forget that this is intended to be a far out looking statement. So you may not have bodies in all of those positions. In fact, those positions may not yet exist. Uh, as one simple example, Maybe right now you have a director of finance and you have a you know a, a few finance support people, but on your on your functional org chart for the strategic five year objective, you have a CFO, you have a controller, you have you know a finance lead, you know assistant finance director, finance director. You may have a whole series of people to then oversee whatever augmented departmental responsibilities you have. So what does that mean? As you're developing the functional org chart, you know if that position doesn't yet exist, you're not obligated to put in a name. Or if you are OCD and have to put in a name, put in your own name uh, as uh, the business owner who's essentially doing some of those big picture responsibilities anyway. Uh, I would argue, for example, a business owner, the entrepreneur, uh, is occupying the CFO seat and the controller seat and the you know finance lead position pretty much at all times until they reach such a, such a scale that can rationalize and justify additional support and and by the way i i've i've implied uh this in some of my past discussions but i want to just remind you that i think entrepreneurs wait too long to bring in good finance help in fact they focus on doing the wrong things they focus on the transaction level, like figuring out how to put things in a system or getting reports out instead of saying, no, what do I want the system to produce for me? What's the output that I'm looking for? And then who can be responsible for that? And investing in that freedom, right? You're actually, this is the closest you can ever buy time. When you bring in good talent in whatever department it happens to be in, but particularly in finance, you free yourself from the rigors of the technical work that needs to get done. And you essentially say, I need this output, right? Uh, or this department produces this output. And for me, it's input. The objective then is for you to, you know, with your team to say, I need 
to know this information, who's going to be responsible, what position, and then what subsystems are going to produce this. And this may sound like minutia to some of you guys, or some of you go, wow, this is just too, this is for a big business, not a small business. But I would submit that any business that really understands the true things that you need, like each Monday, you should have some concept of business review. And for, for managers, um, well, let me say it differently. If you're me, Mondays are a day you knock out meetings and a day you look at dashboards and ultimately a day you formulate questions. And so Mondays are often very, very long days for me because I want to I want to know going into the week where we stand. How do we do last week? What's our outlook for this week? That's some of the, the BDMs that I do one-on-one uh, -on -one with uh, key team members. And then I also want to look at dashboards and and. Look at my KPIs that are most important to me, whether it's gross sales, are we on track for the month? Are we going to hit our budget? Uh, gross margin, are we holding the line or are we facing pressure due to rising costs or um, let's say lower pricing due to competition or promotional efforts? Uh, how's our fixed costs? Are, how are we comping month over month or year over year? Like those are things that as a matter of process, you want to just have uh, your, your monthly meeting and you just do it. That's uh, not monthly, but in that case, it could be weekly. There may also be a monthly cycle where you are now saying, okay, now I'm doing that financial statement review once a month. I'm going to do it on the 15th of the month. And I'm going to have, you know, whoever my finance person is there. I'm going to have my key operations person and I'm going to have my key marketing person. And we're going to have a short discrete meeting where each of us talk about the the various department and the performance and as fast as we can we're going to kind of understand where we're at and then we're out my objective when i talk about meetings is not that you host a bunch of meetings that are pointless and everybody just flaps their gums for the entire time my point is that you move with urgency to preset pre-systematized you know meetup times you bring in, everybody brings in their relevant information to those meetings. You have conversations that are, um, they're actionable. It's like, hey, who's, is everybody on their numbers for this week? Let's say it's a budget uh, kind of review. Yes, everybody's hit their, their top line numbers. Anybody have any problems, you know, for this time period, whatever it happens to be, let's say it's a monthly meeting. And everybody's like, nope, no problems. You know, anybody have anything else that the group needs to know? No? Boom, we're out. You know, that could be a stand-up kind of meeting. If you're, if somebody raises an alarm and goes, yeah, we got a problem, and here it is. We are, you know, we're 20% below our, our sales uh, volume. We had delays, you know, getting our product out of Asia due to things outside of our control. So that means next quarter, we're also going to be below uh, inventory because our stock's going to show up six weeks late. Like these are things that then you dig in and you start to to say, well, what can we do about that, if anything? And you, your teammates, each of you, well, ideally, the way I do it is each of them identify pieces of the problem and what, what monkeys or responsibilities they're going to take out of the meeting with them. Uh, for anyone who's listened to Osmers for a long time, you know that I, I love the book, The One Minute Manager Meets the Monkey. It's a an hour or two read, 
and it will teach you the art of delegation in a fun and informative way. I never want to leave a meeting with a monkey on my back, right? I don't want to take a responsibility away with me. That's not my role. My role is to, to understand, to bring in information, to, to analyze that information, ask a bunch of questions, and then ask for recommendations from the team. And ultimately, if some tie needs to be broken, let's say that you know the team says we should all do this, and there's some disagreement between the team members, and there needs to be a sort of a command decision. That's when I step up and I go, you know, thanks for all the info. I hear it based on my experience, based on my gut. Here's what we're doing, and everybody gets on board, and we move from there. That's kind of how things should work. So in this particular conversation, I want to share with you the i the idea of developing uh, a concept so that you have a position agreement and and the how of you building those position agreements is what I'm going to get into today. And so in this case, I've decided to use a visual aid, which uh, I have not done up until now in this series, but I feel like if I don't use a visual aid, then you guys are, uh, you're at a disadvantage. Uh, so I'm going to, I'm going to put that on the screen for you. And my objective is so that you can see some of the this draft um, functional org chart. And for the audio listeners, I'm going to just uh, describe it very briefly, that we start on the left-hand side as I'm facing this thing with a business development uh, function or department. We move then into marchan- uh, merchandising, onto marketing, then to sales, operations, business intelligence, information technology, and then finance. So I I can't get into the functional aspect of what each of these departments do, but you can kind of infer their meeting, right? Business development, this is like, this is how we're developing sales channels or where we consider going into new geographies or where we strike up partnerships with, you know, influencers or anybody else who can help drive business for us, right? It's literally developing business. So we call it biz dev. Uh, merchandising is this is where you're building product and you're developing content and you're developing brand assets and things like that. This is you know part of the factory that's starting to create stuff. Marketing is now all about how do you promote that um, product or service or whatever you happen to be building in your factory, and and what channels do you want to drive traffic and how do you go find that customer avatar that you've already identified and what components of marketing do you need to formulate together to create a comprehensive marketing message? For example, a video doesn't just have a video. It has often graphics, uh, you know, in that video, it often has, you know, some sort of copywriting, maybe a voiceover, et cetera. So how do all those assets fit together and what positions do you need in-house or um, third-party outsource gig workers, whatever, to get that job done? Finally, you move into sales where you're making the cash register ring. Um, now, there's there's some, let's say, B2C companies that don't think of, you know, sales that they just let their shopping cart do the work. Fine, that's that's okay. There's plenty of B2B uh, cases where you should have not just sales managers and sales um, associates, but have a really comprehensive sales urgent structure where people are like, hey, we we eat what we kill here. Um, and I would argue that in big ticket uh, e-commerce sales or 
any sort of manufacturing, any, anything like that, you really need to consider how does a sales uh, effort um, get managed in there. By the way, some people, I use the term sales, but in, in e-commerce, you might call this the the where they're doing conversion rate optimization, right? Because you're they're focusing on that transaction, getting them from a lead to a sale. So whatever, again, nomenclature, I'm agnostic about vocabulary, but I want you to know your vocabulary. That's a big difference. And finally, operations includes kind of any of that tactile on the ground. We got to touch stuff, do stuff, move stuff, fix stuff, service stuff. That's where we throw a lot of our operational stuff in. So that can include you know, sourcing and, you know, manufacturing, production, um, any sort of the logistical movements of products. Um, yeah, I think that covers operations. And then, of course, business intelligence, this is where you're getting the analysis and where you're starting to, you know, take that data coming from whatever system you're operating and try to try to get lessons out of that data. Uh, as we like to say, you turn data into information. And then you have your IT department. This is your support for, you know, your organization. What, what, you know, service are you using for communication? What email company are you using? All these little tiny things that, you know, are, again, they don't seem important, but they're really important, especially as you grow an organization. You know, do you have a VOIP phone system? Are you, how are you communicating with each other? Is it just over WhatsApp or something simple? And I'm not saying that's a bad thing, but I am saying you at some point, especially as you grow, you're going to start to think about these things and how you systematize them. And then finally, in finance, this is where you're counting all the beans and trying to make sure you have good systems for both the management of that and the counting of that. But you also are aware and you're trying to be cognizant of the fact that, you know, this is where. This is finance is what catches people who steal from you. It's what catches gaps in the system. You know, gosh, we signed up for something on a credit card two years ago and we forgot about it and we're spending, you know, 200 bucks a month on it. It would be nice if somebody in finance said, why are we doing this? And pushed it back to the, the uh, functional department that's responsible for that. And by the way, I, you know, it's, not, it's not like I'm, even though I know these things, even though I'm sharing and one would argue teaching these things, we're not immune to making mistakes. Uh, we just found on one of our credit cards, uh, a company had basically overcharged us by $6,000. And without finance kind of going through an audit process and starting asking questions and pushing it back to reauthorize with the department that, you know, that is responsible for it. We wouldn't have known that. And that's, you know, $6,000 worth of our money that was being misappropriated. So no matter what position you're looking at, all of these parts of your functional org chart break down now into subcategories. So under operations, you might have a sourcing person. They're responsible to go out and source whatever products that you're selling. Uh, you know, again, I recognize this may differ for some people in the service business, but there are many parallels that you can uh, use this example for. So a sourcing person, their position agreement might be something like, you know, my job is to maximize our, you know, return on investment from new product development and deliver products on time within, you know, 90% of 
you know, expected ETAs, expected estimated time of arrival. So we're trying to have a, a just a general position statement that is somehow quantifiable. Like I want, you know, 95% on time delivery. And, you know, here are my general responsibilities. But you're going to take it farther and you're going to get much, much deeper into it. And and I'm, I'm quite serious about getting deep when I say that position should start with uh, basically these components. So this is stuff you want to write down if you are uh, paying close attention. Now, I'm not uh, I'm not oblivious to the fact that some of you may be driving around or not in a position to take notes. So you'll just have to remember to go back and, and play this back later. But if you're making an agreement for a position, you, you kind of start with, well, what's the name of this? What's the title of this particular position? And then who do I report to? right? Who's my direct supervisor for this position? Then you drop that that result statement that I just put in for like the sourcing manager. You know, I'm accountable and responsible for producing, you know, on time, 95% sourcing solutions for the, you know, business development department or operations department or whoever is their kind of upstream input uh, person. And then, so that's a very simple result statement. And by the way, you can customize it and change it, but it should be very simple, one or two sentences. And then, you know, it should be, hey, here are the types of things that um, I do as a, as a component of my job. And you'll list those things. You know, um, I like the old e-myth version where they think about, you know, how much of my work is entrepreneurial? That's vision type stuff. How much of it is managerial? That's like evaluating and managing other people, quantifying how they're doing, and then how much of it is technical work or tactical work, as I often refer to it. And so you would just list the type of work of amongst those three things, those three categories. And this is, you know, highly inspired from my history, my memory of uh, how I used to do things in the 90s when I went through uh, training and so forth uh, with a, a mentor, an entrepreneur who was really helpful to me. But this concept is timeless, right? You want to do this over and over for each and every position. And then you'll you'll start to put down any standards that are relevant for a position contract. So if you think of it as, as this is the core agreement you're trying to strike with somebody who's in this position, and this establishes their accountability. So, you know, Maybe you say, well, every Monday you have to turn in a, an inventory report if you are, you know, the inventory manager and your in-stock rate has to be, you know, 90% or whatever the number is. And your, you know, misshipments or bad, uh, let's call them defective shipments where, you, you know, you pick the order wrong should be less than 1%. It's, it's for Amazon FBA sellers, it's quite similar to how Amazon has the seller scorecard. That's your position agreement with them. And I'm suggesting you should have a position agreement for each position in your organization. And I will again tell you the get out of jail free card on this, everybody is getting a good HR person who can do this work for you. That you present the vision of what you want with position agreements. And then they go through position by position and they list, you know, again, that title, the result statement they want. They uh, figure out who the manager is upstream for that. And then they go through all that 
you know, type of those different types of work and then whatever standards apply to it. And then finally, you get to literally like a contract page, a signature page, where both the, the person who's taking on that responsibility and the manager of that, they're all agreeing to this stuff. So this, this should not be a case where someone says, well, golly, um, it's not in my position agreement, so I'm not doing the work. Uh, that's not the objective here. By the same token, if it's not in there, and you're trying to, you know, hold them accountable to something, we have to have some reconciliation of that go, no, no, we need to adjust the position agreement. We didn't have the system adequately organized, and therefore it didn't produce the result. So we're going to have to augment this position agreement. And you can either do that with an amendment to the position agreement, or you may um, just simply redo it to a new one. The, the number one thing that you want to think about is, again, filling in those blanks so that you don't have um, any gray area. Now, I, I will just, again, tell you this. I know to entrepreneurs, it'll sound overwhelming. I know it did for me. Uh, I also hate doing this kind of work, so I'm not going to do it. And I, I in many ways, I, as an entrepreneur, hate this concept of having to document so many things. But once I did the math on, oh, this is why this is good for me, and more importantly, why it's good for the people. So it's good for me because when we wanna go post a job opening, we don't have to guess about what that job posting should look like. It should be real close. You know, The template is almost exactly what that position agreement looks like. It's like, here's what you're gonna be doing. Here's the types of work you're gonna be doing. Here's the position you're gonna to report to. And here are the qualifications and standards you must have and must be able to achieve. And it makes for really productive conversations. It makes excellent, um, I would say, interview uh, fodder, right? You can go through these things and and your interviews are less generic and less, you know, hey, are you a good worker? Yeah, I'm great. And you're like, okay, well, come to work for me, right? The, the, the process of interviewing is is part, you know, competence and, and this position agreement can really accelerate that. And where you're, when you show somebody this and you go, here's the position agreement, this, these are the types of things we expect you to do. And here's the standards we expect you to maintain. It will scare the crap out of anybody who's not qualified. Like they won't want any part of that, which is great news for you because it's an automatic um, filter that you don't have to apply your brain power to or you know, divine, is this person good or bad? You're setting standards that will attract the people who want accountability and who want to work in a place with high standards. And it will push back the people who don't want that. So as I, as much as I hate the idea of, you know, writing up 20 or 50 or 100 position agreements, I started to go, yes, this actually is a great investment in the future and a wonderful process or even um, it can be a long-term project for the HR person who says, well, listen, you know, we're looking at our five-year functional org chart. We don't have all these positions yet. Many of them are going to be duplicate, right? You, your customer service associate, the same position agreement applies if you have five of them or 20 of them. That's one position agreement. So it's not like you have to customize it for each individual person per se. 
All of this is to say that when you are overwhelmed by the prospect of doing a bunch of it up front, you just start with what you got, the positions you have today. Those are the priorities. Then you move to the most likely next positions you're going to hire for, and then you flesh out the rest of the, the chart, let's say over the course of three to six months. So you don't have to panic about it. And I'm telling you, old Steve, he's right uh, occasionally, actually more than occasionally, if you will, if you have at least five employees, or let's say you have five now, and you're going to hire at least five more, take the time to, to learn about getting an HR partner. It is one of the most freeing things to have somebody who's really good at HR, who's an advocate for the people, even if you have to say no from time to time. Uh, you know, I'm I'm not the king of empathy. Doesn't mean I don't care about people. It just means that I that's my strengths are elsewhere besides empathy. But often you'll find HR people are very high in the empathy category. So they become an advocate for the people. And sometimes they'll ask for things that, that are quite reasonable and you have to say no. I'm sorry we don't have the budget, or I'm sorry we don't have the time, or I'm sorry we're focused on this quarterly objective and we just cannot be distracted. But that doesn't mean it's a bad idea. Let's put it in the queue for next quarter. There's other times where they advocate rightly for things that you should say yes to. Hey, let's do you know, an online company birthday party uh, once a month so that we can celebrate with our, our team members their, you know, their birthdays. And we'll you know, send out a little gift to them or we'll have a little celebration or you know, we'll at least acknowledge people because you know it's really hard to have in a remote organization the human to human connection. So having a really good HR partner is something that I highly advocate, and they can do all of these position agreements for you, and they can make it a process, and it will not only help their future work, like hiring a future people, and eliminate you from a lot of that busy work. You only have to come in at the point that it's relevant to you. So maybe you're the last interview, or maybe you have managers who can be the last interview, right? So HR would do some interviews and do some screening and vetting, and then they would kick it to whoever the appropriate person is who they're going to report to. That person should certainly have a say in the hire. And then ultimately, if you need to interview them on, I, I call it a values interview. I don't interview everybody, certainly. But when I do interview somebody, it's mostly to say, come to work for us. Please make mistakes. Uh, we're hoping that you will move with urgency. And we and I kind of have just a standard set of things to go through. And by the way, I said it. You, you may have heard it. You may have thought I misspoke. But I want somebody to come to work and make mistakes for us. And I tell them that. And I, I, I do it for a number of reasons. But the primary reason is I want them to know that Mistakes are not um, a reason to be ashamed or be sad in our company. It's a it's a learning opportunity. And as long as we don't make the same mistakes again and again, then that means we're making progress. And people who move with urgency, people who are really active and trying to make a difference in the world, they are going to make mistakes. I, I make mistakes myself. So this is not a culture of, beatdowns and and a culture of you made a mistake we're gonna get you and and by the way that's how a lot of companies are and even worse that's how a lot of people 
particularly in the Asia-based uh, you know, worker community, they're afraid of basically jerks and, and people who are going to yell at them. So they become very timid and they become very, um, I would say, risk adverse. Those behaviors are incredibly bad for your business. And so I, you know, I jump on with with uh, key hires and I say, you know, hey, uh, I founded the company. Here's what we believe and here's what we like and here's what we don't like. And if you believe those things and if you can be, you know, instead of a warm body, you can have a big brain and, and make things happen and give us your ideas and tell us when we're stupid and make mistakes, then you might have a place here. Right. That is the kind of culture that I want to set from the very beginning. And ultimately, I want my managers and the HR team and and everybody else who's involved to also apply that same wisdom and knowledge because humans are not built to you know, be robots, right? We need to operate in a way that is aware of human frailty and human ability to make mistakes. Now, I will say it one more time. I've already said it earlier, but I'm going to repeat it. Making the same mistake again and again is sloppiness. That is not what I want, and nor will I accept it. And I'm super clear about that in the same meetings. Like, if you can't learn from your mistakes, you don't have a big brain. You got to go. That's it. But if you go, oh, I made this mistake. I'm I'm mea culpa. I, it's my responsibility. I'm sorry about that. But now I've learned. Here's how we avoid that in the future. Then, holy crap, we just got some intellectual equity in the company. That's now knowledge that we can share and that that person is going to leverage again and again and again. And I will just tell you, it's incredibly powerful. So uh, position agreements, very important step. It's a long one. And I know it can be intimidating, but I'm in imploring you, I suppose, to uh, take the step and commit to it because it really can change how you're able to scale and grow in a dramatic way. Not only do you know where you need to go, so it's giving you a roadmap, but man, it accelerates the hiring and it creates these, these filters that help you find, you know, separate the wheat from the chaff, to use an old saying. So all of this is highly beneficial, but it does take uh, some upfront groundwork. So you decide if you're going to make the investment, uh, but whether or not you make the decision to do it, you'll pay the consequences one way or the other. And remember that consequences could be positive or negative. If you do the work and you get it done right and you commit to it, you're going to have great consequences. And if you choose to ignore it and you don't do the work, you'll still get the consequences. They just won't be great. Huh? How's that? That's a that's a guarantee from Steve. Uh, awesomers, I appreciate you. I hope you are sharing and liking and clicking the buttons and commenting even so that we can send the algorithm all the warm fuzzies and amplify these messages. Thanks, everybody. We'll see you next time on the awesomers.com podcast.